been wished to have been on the team to show up in the stands and just kind of cheer the guys on that did make the team. Uh, but you know, as time went by, I got used to not waking up at five in the morning, not having to run suicides, being able to hang out with friends in the stands, not have to sweat as much. Uh, and then somebody told me about the ping pong team. And you know, ping pong was always like a subpar sport for me. Like that was not really part of the love. But I thought, well, you know, at least I could be part of something. So I make the ping pong team and, you know, kind of threw myself into that and realized I could, I could enjoy that, being a part of something. And, you know, sometimes I was discouraged when I see the basketball team go by. But I thought, well, at least I'm part of something in the, the ping pong team. All of that because my spam filter was set to high sensitivity and I never got the email that I had made the team. Uh, and actually, I'm just kidding, but I did make the team and all that's a fictitious story, but it does describe for us what often happens in a church something that debilitates the church, robs people the joy of participating in the greatest cause that exists. People come and having received a call to participate in the Great Commission, to give your lives to that, often settle for other passions because they feel a part of something that the world offers. Perhaps a more compelling story where you can come to church, but then during the week you go out and you can give yourself to what the world tells you is important, whether that be a job, a career, whether that be um, certain goals that are made. And yet God calls each of you to participate in a task that is far greater more valuable than you can imagine. Often you see people, young people, where you think we're losing them to what the world is offering them. And sometimes the, the desire is, well, read your Bible more. Show up at the services more. And perhaps what these people need to hear is that they are called to participate in something more valuable, more compelling than what the world can offer them. Perhaps some of you sit there and you think uh, you come on Sundays, but then you really live for what happens after that in your job or these other areas when you have received a call that is compelling, that is worthy of giving your life to. You can't miss that in Romans 16. Some of you may have read Romans 16 and thought, this is an interesting passage. It's a list of names. It's a long list of names. But I think in this list of names, we are taught something that should impact our lives and is representative of the way the gospel work was carried out in the New Testament and can be today. So we'll read quickly here, starting in Verse 1, we'll read a portion of Romans 16. Paul, after this great letter, is uh, sending greetings. Romans 16 and verse 1. 
I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in St. that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatius, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena, Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, uh, Ermus, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nurses, and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would work in our lives, that we would feel the joy and the passion of being included in the great work that you are doing for your name around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. This is typical of Paul. If you look through Acts and the Pauline epistles, you're going to find a lot of places where he's mentioning names. And these are names of people you kind of can just kind of start reading by really quick and think, why do we even have almost an entire chapter, especially in Romans, right, where it is so packed with glorious truths. And then he takes a whole chapter to write names of people that we don't even seem to know or make any connection with. Uh, you know, John at the end of his gospel says, you know, if we were to write everything that Jesus did, the whole earth couldn't contain what was written. And maybe some of us have wished, I wish he had written a little bit more about this, but then our Bible would be huge. But then why do you take a whole chapter under inspiration to write the names of people where he just says, greet this guy's mother. She's been like a mother to me too. Or greet this person who opened the, the doors of their house. It almost doesn't seem to, to fit. But I think the message loud and clear is that the work of the gospel, the advancement of the Great Commission, happened through ordinary people. All fulfilling roles. And what joy that their names are in, in inspired scripture, right? Because <laughs> they opened their home. Uh, actually, if you look at this list, there's 33 people in this chapter mentioned by name. And there's several more specifically mentioned women, like certain mother or sister. There's two family groups uh, greeted. There's three groups, which are probably churches, that he greets specifically. 
And, and that's common. There, there's a misconception that the work all these churches we saw planted in Acts takes place by an incredibly gifted apostle, when in reality, there were large groups of great commission servants participating in this work, and they're mentioned in Scripture by name. There's actually at least 70 people mentioned in Scripture who we know participated with Paul in the ministry. And that's not even all he mentions. I wasn't even including another 24 people whom he simply greets, mentioned by name. The work of the gospel was carried out by large teams of ordinary people playing specific roles in the advancement of the gospel. There's evidence in churches like Philippi of at least 11 different people strategically investing in that church plant. Or in Corinth and Ephesus, at least 16 people by name investing in those church plants. It wasn't just one super apostle. And the work of the gospel today isn't carried out just by super missionaries, super pastors, but by people like you. Somebody might say, hey, but I've got a job. I work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. How can I strategically invest in the gospel? Let's look back here at Romans 16. Uh, We don't have time to go through each of these people on the list, so we're just going to take the first couple of people he greets in Rome. All right? So Romans 16, and we're going to see several verses here. Romans 16, verse 3. So he does greet Phoebe. She's from a close by area. But when he starts thinking about those in Rome, he thinks specifically of a couple. He says, greet Prisca and Achilla. Who is Prisca and Achilla? This isn't the first time we've seen them in scripture. Let's go to the first time we're introduced to this couple. Go in your Bibles to Acts 18. Uh, Enjoyed hearing your Bible reading this morning from Acts 18. Uh, Acts 18, we're introduced to this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, right? Acts 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's on his second missionary journey, and he arrives at Corinth. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Achilla, a native. And I want you to listen with me, right? Because we're going to think, who is Achilla and Priscilla? So he finds a Jew in Corinth named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, being Paul, went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So what did we learn? What do we learn as we're first introduced to Aquila? Well, he is a Jew, but he's from Pontius originally. He was in Italy, specifically Rome. He had to come to Corinth because Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. History tells us that happened in the year 49 after Christ. After the year 49, Claudius did kick all the Jews out of Rome. And 
Paul, on his second missionary journey, most likely is in Corinth around the year 51. He's in in Corinth around the year 51. So Achille and Priscilla probably beat Paul to Corinth by year and a half, couple of years. What are they doing there? They're tent makers. How many of you have started your own business? Several. Uh, several of you have started your own business. We, we, my brother and I started a, a lawn care service. And, so, you know, those first years are the hardest, right? When you're trying to get clientele, when you're trying to help your business to become known. That's tough. But it looks like Achille and Priscilla are just good at business. They're pretty good at this. They're doing well. Why do I think that? Because Paul comes to them. He does the same thing, but instead of viewing him as competition, they say, we need help. Come and stay with us. We need somebody else producing these tents. So it seems like they're doing pretty well. Paul comes to them. He probably stays with them, works with them, lives with them. Can you imagine what it would be like to work with Paul? Can you imagine this? You would either go crazy hearing about the gospel because that's what Paul is determined to preach, right? Or you would love it and you would grow. And it seems that that's what happens with Achille and Priscilla. We don't know if that was the time they met Christ. Actually, Acts 2 says that there were people from Pontius there in, uh, at Pentecost. So maybe Achille, maybe there was other Christians Maybe he had heard the gospel in another place. But this couple is transformed by what happens there. And they desire to participate in gospel work. Even the very fact that they open their home to this guy, Paul, they're taking a risk. The fact that they open their business, they're risking their business, they're risking their home to bring him in. Why do I say that? If you look at the context later on, you just have to go back to Acts 17, the previous chapter. Do you remember what happened in Thessalonica to the guy who opened his home to Paul? His name is Jason. He almost loses his life when a mob comes and drags him out because they can't find Paul. Same group of people from Thessalonica, they're following Paul, looking for him where he goes. Paul's having to flee from these guys, looking to take his life. So it's not really safe to open your home to this guy, Paul. They do, they risk their home, they risk their business reputation. They bring Paul in, their lives are transformed. Paul stays there about a year and a half And when he moves on, we find something interesting. I think these are the verses you read later on. Let's drop down to the next time we hear of Achille and Priscilla again. Acts 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. He's leaving Corinth. And with him, Priscilla and Achille. They're going with Paul. Why are Achilla and Priscilla going with Paul? All those who started your own business, that almost seems crazy. He had to leave Rome because he was kicked out by an emperor. But it looks like, it looks like vol, they're volunteering to go with Paul. Losing all that clientele, losing the startup of their business that seemed to be going well. How many of us are willing to risk our business? or money we can make to participate in the Great Commission. 
Perhaps somebody would say, man, if I had been able to hang out with Paul all this time, I would go with Paul too. <laughs> you know, he's probably their best friend. They want to go with Paul and be with Paul. Who could, who could pass up the opportunity to be with Paul? But that's probably not their motivation. Look down at verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he, being Paul, left them there. So Achille and Priscilla leave Corinth, uproot their home, their business. They go with Paul to Ephesus. And, and Paul, this is on his second journey. The people in Ephesus say, stay, Paul. We want to hear more. Paul says, I can't. I'm going back to Antioch, to Jerusalem. I, I'm, I'm leaving. So Paul leaves, but he leaves Achille and Priscilla. They would have loved to have been with Paul, but they're willing to give up friends, family. If God calls some of you to missions, you would have to give up those evenings where you hang out just with the family, maybe some friendships. Achille and Priscilla do it for the sake of the gospel. They're willing to see Paul move on and they stay in Ephesus. Actually, it looks like because they're good at business, they have some opportunities that Paul doesn't have. They can see an opportunity in Ephesus and say, we're just going to stay to participate in what God is doing. So you've got a family who they risk their home, they risk their business, they risk their friendships, all because they are passionate about participating in the Great Commission, in the work that God's doing. What are they doing in Ephesus when, when Paul's not even there? Look down a few more verses. It was enjoyable to read these verses earlier here. There's a guy who comes named Apollos. If you look down at chapter 18, verse 24, and this is actually going to be the last time that, that Luke mentions this couple, Achille and Priscilla. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native from Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. If you remember, that becomes a problem when Paul comes back to Ephesus on the third journey, where there's these people that they follow the teaching of John, but that's, that's all they know. So Paulus, that's what he's teaching, the baptism of John, saying, repent, John was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, Seems like this guy who is passionate for teaching the teaching scriptures. He's there for John, meets Jesus, and he just he he blows out of there teaching everybody what he's heard from John. But it seems like he missed Jesus dying on a cross. He misses the glory of the gospel, and he's just teaching what John was teaching. Prepare the way, repent. And so he's teaching. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Achilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God, sorry, skip two pages here, the way of God more accurately. So they come, they, they, hear, Achille, they hear Apollos. And Achilla and Priscilla, they're not the ones teaching in the synagogue probably. It's a couple, they're probably making tents again. They're in Ephesus, but they hear this guy, Apollos, and they say, he could be mightily used by God. And they do what Paul did with them, and they say, 
Apollos come to our house or come, they take him aside. So it's not, they're not confronting him in front of people. They're not feeling competition with him. They want to invest in him for the kingdom. They, they pull Apollos aside and they explain to him more accurately the gospel. And here you see this couple impacting the world, probably in their house, discipling somebody who doesn't know the gospel The reason I say it impacts the world, if you look later on at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, do you remember, you don't have to go there, do you remember what, you know, Paul says there's divisions in the church? Some of you say, I'm from Cephas, other of you say, I'm from Paul, and others say they're from who? Apollos. And then he says, others say you're from Christ. That's a pretty elite group, right? To most influential apostles who we see in scripture, Peter and Paul and obviously Jesus, and they put Apollos in that list. Evidently, there's a group of people who don't think they're, they're losing anything by saying, I'm not from Peter, Paul, or Jesus, I'm from Apollos. Now, they have big problems there, but all that to say, Apollos had an amazing ministry, huge impact, teaching the gospel, but because a couple, Paul actually later, he coordinates with Apollos and wants to send Apollos different places. So he wouldn't do that if Apollos hadn't accurately understood the gospel, but it was Achilla and Priscilla who taught him. That's pretty exciting ministry, right? Many of you who work your jobs and feel like that takes you away from ministry, you can open your home, you can invest in people, you can disciple people, and you could impact the world by the people you invest in who could go to other places like what happens with Apollos. It's kind of neat to notice also, this is a couple, they do it together. They're always mentioned together. Six times here in scripture. That was the third time we see them mentioned, and then Luke doesn't mention this couple anymore. That was it. Even when Paul comes back to Ephesus, when Paul comes back, we know, and I'll show you that here in a minute, we know that Achille and Priscilla were still in Ephesus when Paul comes back on the third missionary journey. Paul spends there in Ephesus more time than any other area that he visited on his missionary journeys. He spends three years in Ephesus. He teaches for two years in the school of Tyrannus. That you see that down in Acts 19, verse 8. This, this school of Tyrannus, uh, it's the closest thing to probably theological education you see in Scripture. The Western text tells us that he was meeting probably from 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. Paul tells us in the next chapter that he did this every day. He's meeting and he's teaching. And some translations call it a school, some call it a hall, but the idea is a place where there was teaching involved. So Paul is teaching every day, and that became a launching pad for church planting. The next verse says that from there, all of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the gospel. And Achilla and Priscilla were part of probably learning in that school, and as we'll see here later, they had that passion to participate in the Great Commission in church planting. So Luke doesn't mention this couple again. 
perhaps he doesn't see the importance. Luke's hero is, is Paul. He loves being with Paul, sharing what God's doing through Paul. But Paul kind of um, lets us know in all of his epistles, there's a lot of other people working with him. He doesn't overlook lay people. He doesn't think they're secondary. They're vital in the advancement of the gospel. Paul mentions them. The next place we see this couple is 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, it's another one of these epistles where Paul's writing and he comes to the end and he starts mentioning names, right? He starts mentioning names of people who he loves, names of people who have participated in the gospel, in the gospel with him. I say 1 Corinthians is the next place because chronologically this would be the next time we see this couple appear. 1 Corinthians 16 I actually put a note up there because I want you to catch this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. This, 1 Corinthians written more or less in the year 55. More or less in the year 55. Um, that's at the end of his third journey. He spent time in, in Ephesus and then he, in Ephesus, God's doing an amazing work and he wants to write to Corinth. But we learned something interesting here. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. Writing from Ephesus to Corinth, he says, the churches of Asia, Ephesus would be included in that, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Achilla and Prisca, that's probably just like a term of endearment. Like, you know, he knows and loves this couple. Achilla and Prisca together with the church in their house send you greetings in the Lord with the church in their house. Pretty cool, right? They probably are good at business. They probably make money. Uh, The church was growing by leaps and bounds. One author said that by the year 67, shortly after this, there was over 300 house churches estimated in Ephesus and as it grows, they probably look for, for homes that have the ability to receive people. Priscilla and Aquila, they seem to be doing good in their business. They have their own home. Maybe it's a bigger home, and they can bring people in. They're risking their home again. That's hard for a lot of us. I say they're risking their home because if you read what happens in Ephesus, does Ephesus just love the Christians? Remember what happened in Ephesus? There was this, you know, the guy, the temple Diana, and he makes these little temples. And he says, the Christians are destroying our business. They're destroying the reputation. There's this huge mob. It's not easy to be a Christian in Ephesus. It's not easy to open your home, especially if you have a business, but they do it. They risk their home. Your home can be used as a strategic tool for great commission, inviting people into your home encouraging them in the Lord. A lot of wonderful conversations happen in your home. When you invite neighbors, when you invite people from your church into your home, Priscilla and Aquila were doing that and the church actually was in their home. They're taking risks. Why do they risk? They've shown time and time again that they have long since 
given up the passion and desire just to make money, the passion and desire just to be comfortable. They've left their business. They've left their friends. They've risked their business. They've risked their home all because they found a greater passion. The other things were like playing ping pong when you could be playing basketball. <laughs> they, they have a passion for participating in something the world could never offer them with all the money, with all the advancement, with all the popularity and prestige. They're participating in the Great Commission and the church is in their house. The next time this couple is mentioned is in Romans 16, the passage that we're at. So let's go back to Romans 16. Romans 16. Just take note that the, the letter to, to, to the Romans was written in about the year 56, more or less. The year 56. Paul is still on his third missionary journey. He's left Ephesus, but he wants to visit churches where he had, that he had planted on a previous uh, missionary journey. So he goes to Corinth, and from Corinth, he writes to Rome. So remember, remember, 1 Corinthians was written probably in the year 55, more or less. Romans is a year later. And let's see what happens. Romans 16, he says, Greet Prisca, term of endearment again, and Achilla my fellow workers in Christ. So now what do we learn from that? Where are Priscilla and Aquila? They're in Rome. He's writing to Rome. He's not saying they send greetings. He's saying greet them. They're actually the first people he wants to greet in Rome. And he knows a lot of people. But evidently this couple who are lay workers, who he worked with, he's, who are passionate about the gospel. He loves this couple. He, they're the first ones he greets that are actually in Rome. So a year earlier, just a year earlier, they were in Ephesus with a church in their house. Now they're in Rome. Some people think that doesn't even hardly make sense one year to the next, but it is interesting to note that Claudius, he's the emperor, right? They kicked him out in the year 49. He died in the year 54. That emperor dies in the year 54. Nero comes in. The persecution in Rome hadn't picked up steam yet. Uh, but maybe there's an open door for Achilla and Priscilla to move back. One of Paul's strategies that you see not only Paul, I think one of the strategies you see in scripture is there's a certain gospel responsibility for those closest to you, certain opportunity that they have. And Priscilla and Aquila are participating in gospel work in other areas, but now they have the chance to return to their home in Rome, maybe where they know family. Paul hasn't even made it to Rome yet, but they probably because of their business, they can go anywhere and they show up in Rome again because of this gospel responsibility and opportunity and so they're now in Rome. What else do we learn about them? They're fellow workers in Christ Jesus. I love the way Paul does this, right? He, they're lay workers. 
but he doesn't see them as subpar to him, an, an apostle. He calls them fellow workers. The idea is they're, they're my partners. You see men and women in this list. If you look at what Paul writes in other areas, you see people, not just Jews, but Gentiles from all places. You see famous people. You see slaves. You see rich people. You see despised people. You see just a vast range of gospel workers and Paul continually includes them helping us to realize as well that the gospel also advances today not just in an apostle or a pastor or a missionary but as the whole church those who have received the gospel actively participate in the great commission so they're his fellow workers look at verse 4 he says something that they did he says who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well that's one of the spots where I just wish I knew what happened right so Paul's gotten himself into some tough situations before right he's the guy that gets let down in a basket He's, he's the guy that gets stoned and somehow survives and gets up and goes back in to keep teaching. He, he's used to being in some difficult situations. Uh, if you want to, you can go to 2 Corinthians 11 and just read. He's been stoned. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He's, he's faced dangers. He's of theft. This guy has been in some tough situations. But evidently, there was such a tough situation that he was in that he actually mentions it to the church. And he mentions that it's actually Achille and Priscilla that stuck out their necks for him. So when he says they stuck out their necks, they were actually willing to be the ones who took the consequences for whatever Paul got himself into. Somehow this couple did something. We don't know what it is. But Paul is in a situation where he might die. And Achille and Priscilla somehow, I don't know if they talk together and they say, Paul's in a bad situation. But you know, we could do this. We could lay our lives down and Paul could get away and keep preaching the gospel. And they do it. That's how passionate they are about the Great Commission. They're not only willing to risk their home their business, their friends, their comfort, their money, they're willing to give their lives. Just a lay couple. They're not getting paid for this. They're willing to give everything. And that's how the gospel advanced. We don't know what happened, but they say, let's lay down our necks. They didn't die. Evidently, everybody gets out okay. But that impacted him so much that it looks like when Paul goes around, because Achille and Priscilla haven't been in all the churches of the Gentiles, but evidently Paul shares this story. Hey, if if, if it weren't for this couple, these friends of mine who stuck out their necks for me, I wouldn't be here. And so all these churches start giving thanks for Achille and Priscilla. Man, we don't know them, but praise God for a couple who would be willing to give everything for the sake of the gospel. Is that typical of people every day in the pew? Say, if that time comes, I'm willing to give everything. 
for the gospel. That's, that's a fertile ground for people getting called to missions, called to pastor, but it's a fertile ground for people using their businesses, their resources, their opportunities strategically for the Great Commission. That's how we long to see it advance in Columbia. That's part of the, the seminary there. We're, we're longing for God to raise up church planting teams. And there's actually a book, if you've read, J.D. Greer writes a book, uh, Gaining by Losing. And one of the things he says there is, you know, the 1040 window, the least reached part of on earth. Uh, he says there's actually 2 million Americans who work in the 1040 window on business. If, if only 10% of those are Christians who believe in making disciples. Statistics say, you know, if you look at the statistics in America, it should be higher than 10%, maybe up to 23, 33% are Christians. But let's take it down to 10% and say 10% of those 2 million living in the 1040 window are living like Achille and Priscilla to make disciples, using their business strategically, then you've got, if I'm not mistaken, 200,000 disciple makers in the least reached part of the earth being paid to be there, passionate to make disciples. That's what we want to see in Colombia too. People who they know how to, to migrate, they've done it because of the violence in Colombia, to see armies of Great Commission servants go out with this type of passion that don't view church and serving Jesus as just on Sunday, fill the seat and then go to their work with their passion because that's the most compelling thing happening in their life. But they see their work, that's all secondary. If I have to give up my job, if I have to move to a place where I make less money, but for the sake of the gospel, that's their passion. They don't want to be consumed playing ping pong. They want to be in the real game. They want to be involved in Great Commission. And I long for every one of us, for our partners in Columbia and for you all to feel that passion too. Participation that God calls you to participate in the Great Commission. So this couple risks their lives for Paul. And then verse five, greet also the church in their house. Pretty amazing, right? A year earlier, the church in Ephesus was in their house. A year later, the church in Rome is in their house. They risk, <laughs> Rome's gonna become a complicated place to be a Christian too, but they take those risks for the sake of the gospel. The last time this couple is mentioned is in 2 Timothy 4.19. It's the last book that Paul writes, the last letter that Paul writes and him knowing this is the very end, he's ready to be offered, to be sacrificed. He doesn't greet many people. Verse 19, 2 Timothy 4, he says, greet Prisca and Achilla and the household of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus, Paul has to greet him because he's the guy carrying the letter, right? So he kind of has to do that out of courtesy. The only other people he mentioned isn't greet James, greet Paul, greet Peter, greet apostles. He greets this couple. He greets this couple who've given their lives for the sake of the gospel. How does this apply to us in Columbia? How does it apply to you here in Greenville. I'm going to give you a couple of, a few quick um, ways that you could apply this to your life. A few challenges. What I would like is that you would pick one and take on this challenge and then maybe share it with other people later at lunch. So first challenge, 
um, the first challenge, use your job, career, studies to strategically participate in the Great Commission. Instead of viewing it as a competition, like I would love to serve Jesus, but I have to work a job. At your job, you're gonna meet people your pastor would never meet. In your studies, you're gonna, you're gonna come into contact. Use those relationships strategically for the gospel. You make a ton of money and you're good at business. Use it strategically for the gospel. You, you have contact with a lot of people. Use it strategically for the gospel. Challenge number two. Set a ministry learning goal. Theological education, counseling, book study. Part of the reason the gospel went everywhere from Ephesus is because there's a school of Tyrannus. Undoubtedly, they were involved in that. Undoubtedly, they learned from, from Paul. One of the ways you become effective and passionate in, in leading other people to Christ and participating in the Great Commission is, is learning, is studying. So set uh, a learning goal, a ministry learning goal. Your pastor, I'm sure, can help you figure out the best way to do that. Challenge number three. Challenge three, strategically use your house to participate in the Great Commission. It's, a, it's an amazing tool. Be willing to risk. Be willing to risk people coming in with dirty feet. Be willing to risk your home. Bring neighbors in. Bring family in. Bring others in intentionally for the sake of the gospel. Challenge four would be give your life for the advancement of the kingdom of God, not your own. So that's a radical adjustment of priorities. You don't make decisions based on where you get the most money, which is what most people do, or where it's more comfortable or where you're closest to friends. Your decisions and the processes you go through are how to invest in the Great Commission. Quick illustration, this next picture is a picture of a tulip. Now, tulips, some of you, you guys know what tulips are, right? The, the flowers, they grow from bulbs. Some of these ladies are smiling because they know exactly what that is. Or maybe they're smiling because other, their husband doesn't know what that is. It's a flower, it comes from a bulb. It actually came to Europe first in, from Turkey in the 1500s. Trade started big time in the Netherlands around 1593. And the price of these bulbs skyrocketed. If you want to look this up later, it's called tulip mania. Have you heard of that? A few of you. If you study economics, you may have studied this. So the price of these bulbs skyrocketed like you can't believe. So these bulbs come in and people start saying, hey, I would really like those in my house. And they're rich. They get these bulbs. And then they start trading and bartering. Like maybe somebody says, hey, I'll give you my horse for one of those bulbs. So it's like, are you kidding me? A horse for a, a bulb? Yeah. It, it got even crazier. People start saying, I'll give you my estate for one of those bulbs. That happened too. People start saying, I'll give you my inheritance for one of those bulbs. It became like a currency, kind of like a stock that everybody thinks is going to skyrocket and is skyrocketing. And everybody starts running after it. People start saying, if you want to really make money and be wealthy, invest in these bulbs. And people started taking inheritances, households, things that were valuable to them and, and just dumping that money into getting these bulbs. So the peak of this happened in February 3rd is the highest recorded price. This is 1637 in the Netherlands. So one bulb sold for more than 10 times the annual salary of a skilled worker. 
So where I'm from in Tennessee, the annual salary would be about 57000 for a skilled worker. That means one bulb sold for the equivalent of more than half a million dollars. One bulb. Later on, there's records of a lot of 40 bulbs selling for a million three hundred thousand dollars. That's in February, and then something crazy happened. By May 1st, by May 1st, just a couple of months later, one bulb sold for the price of an onion, about a dollar. What happened? It just crashed. There was no real intrinsic value in these bulbs. You can read about it later. People thought they had value, but there was no intrinsic value. People started not being able to sell them, and then the whole thing crashed. So you could sell it for a dollar after being sold a couple of months earlier for over half a million dollars. The world tries to deceive us, seduce us into thinking what's important, and they can be compelling with their arguments. So much so that people are willing to give everything to what the world tells them is important. In the end, in eternity, all that the world offers you is less valuable than an onion. Nothing. The sad thing is when churches become passionate or people become passionate about giving themselves to what the world offers, ignoring that true value in life is found in worshiping, honoring, your savior, following him. So I hope you take one of the challenges. I hope that God awakens a passion in each. And I think from hearing and talking with many of you, you feel this. You are called. It's not like you're on the outside looking in. You did make the team. There's the opportunity to participate with your jobs, with your home, with your time, each of you strategically for the Great Commission. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the names of these Great Commission servants that we see in Romans, that we see all over scripture. I pray that you would give each of us a passion to invest our lives, the resources and opportunities that you have given to us for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Dan, thank you very much. You have labored in the word. This is a message prepared in the heart that has reached our heart, and we are very grateful. Now we have a choice. Now we have a response. We can hear 